In chapter 1 of the book of Exodus, we see a narrative traced out uh, that it compounds, it increases exponentially. And the narrative is a quite evil narrative. Uh, We begin with the changing of the guard. Uh, There's a moment in Israel's history where they go from being a favored people in the land of Egypt. They're invited there by a pharaoh in Egypt's past, and they are invited there to be a to take refuge in the land, to receive the bounty and abundance of the land. They're invited there to uh, be even the royal uh, livestock keepers, the royal shepherds. The, the, the Pharaoh sees that they have value and worth in that area, and he asks Joseph, uh, who is um, an Israelite, to appoint his family to be the royal shepherds. And there's a changing of the guard, and a new Pharaoh comes in who doesn't know uh, Joseph, and, and he begins to treat the children of Israel with uh, oppression and, and persecution. Now, we saw that this is partially because uh, they, began to out, they began to grow in number greatly. They entered the land with 70 people and went from there to 70 people to, uh, you know, a thousand and tens of thousands. And by the time that the children of Israel will leave Egypt, they will number around three million people. And so this is evidence of God's faithfulness to his people to keep the covenant with Abraham, that he told him that he would make him a great nation, he would multiply them, and, uh, and that he would cause them to flourish. And here uh, we see that Pharaoh, he begins to place this yoke of bondage upon them, and, and he opposes them. And in opposing them, he doesn't so much oppose uh, the children of Israel as we see that he is painted as someone in direct opposition to God. Because it's God who gives the creation mandate to go forth and to multiply. And he's the one who promises that he will bless them and cause them to flourish and will make them a great nation. And so in opposing the children of Israel, Pharaoh actually opposes God. Now, he comes up with a plan to cause uh, difficulty for them. He starts off by taking them from their situation of being the uh, royal shepherds and makes them into a class of slaves. He puts them into the lowest uh, caste system uh, in their culture. And then if that's not enough, it's not working and it's not causing them to uh, be discouraged and to uh, die off. And so he ups uh, his intensity of the work that he places upon them. He increases the work and it's described as being ruthless. It's described as it being heaped upon them more and more. The intention of the work is to uh, discourage. It's intended to uh, put them in a place where they have to travel for these projects that are uh, a ways away from their family, so they are are not able to uh, conceive children. They're not able to uh, help their family. They're not able to uh, work as farmers and produce agriculture for their nation. Um, It's designed to kill them with Uh, by weakening their uh, immune system and and causing uh, great difficulty for them. Uh, They're worked as as actual slaves uh, with the purpose of destroying them. Now, that was one angle, but then he goes even further and he uh, asks the Hebrew midwives, these Israelite midwives who would help birth Israelite children, he tells them that they should kill any uh, 
any male children that are born to the Hebrews. Now, he does this in a way that he wants them to accomplish this in a, in a semi-secret fashion. He wants them to uh, make sure that the, you kind of make it look like, oh, like this, this child was just born, you know, uh, it was a stillborn child. It was already dead uh, when it came out. There was complications in birth. But the midwives, they, they don't. They, they fear God rather than Pharaoh, and they are protective of life, and they are obedient to the creation mandate. And then Pharaoh goes to the next level. He takes it even further. It goes from being a secret to being an all-out genocidal act. He not only seeks the approval of his nation, but he commands participation in this act. In verse 22, he says, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. See, this is the way that evil spreads unless it is stopped. It, what someone wants to do first in secret, it eventually makes its way into the public sphere and then, uh, you know, gains approval on a broader scale. And we've seen this throughout uh, many times in history. Uh, this has happened uh, in Israel's history again and again and again, and even uh, recently um, in, uh, in history looking at the genocidal acts that were carried out by Hitler and the Nazis as they tried to exterminate uh, the Jewish people. They tried to uh, destroy them in this similar fashion. It started off with an ideology and quickly grew into a full-on national party uh, with uh, a command to approve and participate in uh, the rounding up of these different ethnic groups. Now, here we see how Moses' family deals with it in chapter 2. If you read in chapter 2, we have uh, just, this is a wonderfully brilliant text in how uh, Moses writes and how this sits in uh, the place of Scripture. So we're going to look at it this morning um, and, and highlight some of the things that stick out to us regarding uh, Moses' birth, these unique details that are given. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it's described, uh, Moses' parents here, as being of the house of Levi, a man of the house of Levi, and he took as his wife a Levite woman. So we're just basically saying, you know, these people are from the, the same background, same lineage. In chapter 6, we find out the name of uh, Moses' uh, father, and we have also a, a, her, uh, his mother's name. His father's name is Amram, and his mother's name is Jochebed. Uh, but chapter 2 doesn't really give us those details. It doesn't point those things out. It just simply tells us of his lineage. It says, you know, these people are they're of the house of Levi. And the purpose of leaving out the details uh, around his birth is to elevate the importance of his lineage. Now, last week when we opened up the book that we saw that the lineage is important. It, he starts off giving us a genealogy, like this family history. And the importance of that is to connect the present to the past. Now, for Moses, what's being said here is that his background, he is coming from 
the lineage that will become late, uh, important later in the book. Right now, it's, it's not so important, but it will later become the priestly tribe. This is, uh, and Moses will ultimately act in the priestly role by being the one uh, in whom the law is given to the people of God. Moses was fully a Levite, and so he was qualified. He was responsible uh, to be a part of that tribe and to lead that tribe, who God would later designate as his people, who would be uh, the spiritual leaders for all of Israel. So God is putting these pieces in place foundationally for Moses to fulfill what he will be called to be. He will be called into this role, but God is already putting these things which are out of his control in place. He's working behind the scenes to prepare Moses for what he's called him to. Now we see uh, his parents, their response upon their child. In verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, if you have a different translation, this might say something a little bit different, and it might sound a little bit funny. It kind of sounds a little bit funny, but here by saying he's a fine child. Uh, if you are reading in uh, the NASB or the New King James Version, it might say that he's a beautiful child. It might say, uh, if you're reading in some translations, that he's a healthy child or, or simply that he's a fine child. Now, it's a little bit curious because basically we see she, she sees he's a fine child and so she hides him like are we supposed to understand that like oh if this kid was pretty ugly looking like well we would just leave him out in the open is that what's really being communicated here uh oh he doesn't look that great so we won't hide him that's that's not that's not what he's getting at what's actually being done here is uh the use of language that appears in another important passage in scripture the word that it's actually being used in, in the most literal uh, sense, the, the direct uh, or the root language, is that it, it would say that she saw that he was a good child. He was a good child. Which, to us, we identify good with behavior. So we, we wouldn't feel like, well, like he's obedient. Is that what's being described? But the, the root word there that is being described is that he's a good child. You see, verse 2, it's an echo reverberating in the history of Israel all the way back to Genesis 1, where God calls his creation good. He's a fine child. He's a good child. He is good. In the creation account, we have God working and creating and God declaring his creation good and then resting from his finished work on the seventh day. In Moses' birth, we see and we hear this echo of the creation language as he is declared to be good. Now Moses will go on to deliver God's people from slavery and bondage, leading them out of Egypt and into the wilderness to make a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, where he declares them to be his people and make them a nation. And then Moses takes them and he leads them out of bondage into rest, into the land of promise. Moses' new beginning, his creation, initiates the forming of a new nation, a new people that will be removed from bondage, from that 
oppression and persecution and brought to a place where they are made a part of the family of God and then they're brought into perfect, uh, perfect land prepared for them that is promised and given to them that will give them rest. And likewise, we see in Jesus' birth initiating a new creation. In his death, he defeats death, fulfilling the new covenant, making his own new people, his own new nation. And upon living the perfect life in our place and dying in our place for our sin, he declares in John 19, it is finished. It's accomplished. It's, it's fully done. And Jesus, in that moment, echoes the creation account indicating that his work at the cross is so good and, it, and, and that God is so completely satisfied with it that it is finished. There's no more work that needs to be done. So Moses acts here as a forerunner. His birth begins to leave these breadcrumbs for Israel and for you and, and me to see in the text that this is pointing to Jesus. It's ultimately showing us, though Moses will be born and will be a deliverer for these people, it's ultimately, and Moses himself will declare this later in the book, that there is a greater deliverer to come who will rescue and save, who will lead his people into rest. Now in verse 3, Moses' mother, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, there's a number of reasons why she couldn't hide him any longer. You know, he's like three years old and, or I mean, not three years old, three, three months old around and uh, starting to make a lot of noise, harder to, you know, keep, keep old Mo on the down low. He's starting to Scream! There's like something that happens when when babies get to like a certain age. Like their cry is like a little bit cute when it's like when they're first born, but then there comes to like a, a certain age where like their lungs kick in and they get a boost, and it's like all hell breaks loose when they scream. You're like, no, you know, like there's like the cute baby cry when they're first born. You're like, oh, I could deal with that like all the time. But then once they get to that next level, like it's crazy, and that could be one of the reasons here. Uh, there could have been a change in um, there could have been a change in the rotation of the guards. There could be a number of reasons, but here's what she does: she she takes uh, some bulrushes and essentially what she makes is kind of this papyrus little basket. Um, she fashions it with with uh, tar and pitch, and uh, she puts this together here, and she it's essentially kind of making this cradle, and she puts uh, Moses into this basket. Now, again here, there's some intentionality. Because this basket here, this this term is only found one other place here in the Bible. I'll give you one guess. You can get it. Genesis 6 through 8, story of Noah. The word here is actually translated ark. This, this, what, what's being made for, for Moses here is an ark. It's the only other place in the Bible where it speaks of this. Moses' mother, Jochebed, was protecting him 
from death by creating a small ark. Just as God has protected Noah and all the animals by this great ark in, in the days of the great flood, here Noah and Moses are similar in the sense that they will be carried in this ark to safety. They will be placed in this ark that has been treated similarly in, upon the waters that are, bring common destruction to many. These, are, these two are saved. She takes Moses, she puts him in it, and places it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, this is obviously a desperate attempt to hide Moses. Because if you've ever had a kid or you've ever watched someone who has a kid, like, you pretty much like, don't want them ever near water. You don't want to put them in a sketchy homemade thing. Like, that's just bad news. Sketchy homemade thing. And then like, put them on an active river. Like, it's just, those are just like, that's a trifecta of terror. You, you don't want to deal with that. But Moses' mother did the best that she could. She made it as safe as she could. But it doesn't really even matter. The method, the way that she did it, how hard she worked, and the outcome that we read in the coming verses, they show that this was ultimately God who protects Moses. This, this plan that she comes up with, the, the desperation that she acts in, it highlights God's sovereignty for us. Now, often we feel overwhelmed. We feel the world's against us. There's like a ton of things that we, you know, have to do or people have expectations of us. And we, you know, we're uh, making grand plans for the future, wanting to make the right choice and, and not go down the wrong path. And, you know, there's these big things that seem so weighty. And this was certainly the case for Jochebed as she placed Moses in the basket to float on the river. Like, what am I doing? Is this even the best thing? I mean, I, I can't even imagine like, the worry and fear. Even like a kid who could swim, like, that's, all, that's already like, pretty sketchy, even if your kid could swim. But to put a, a young child here into this basket upon the Nile. But what it highlights for us is despite her fears, despite her worries and her anxiety, and despite the fear that you face in your life regarding your decisions or the things that you're trying to do or the expectations that people have upon you, what this shows is that there's not a safer place that Moses could have been. Where you are and what you're doing, if you are submitted to the Lord, there's not a safer place that you could be. Because it's ultimately God who oversees and protects and provides for this child. It could be the sketchiest little basket, like, uh, arc thing in the world, and God could sustain it. It's ultimately his work, and so, worry, worry, there's not really a, a purpose or a reason for that. That's why Jesus tells us, you can't add a cubit to your stature by worrying, but in trusting in the God of all things, we're able to find rest as he works to accomplish his will and purposes. 
Now, Moses' parents, they trusted in God, and they did everything in their power, and then they rested in God's sovereignty. That's what we should do. That's how we should act. They're credited in Hebrews 11, verse 23, uh, in acting in faith. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. You see, they trusted God more than they feared any man and they were determined. They had purposed to live by faith. Knowing that the God who covenanted with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob would be faithful, would see and accomplish his purposes as he desires. Now in verse 4 and 5, we get kind of the response here. Here's what happens. Here's the result of this basket in the reeds, this ark. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. Now, later we learn the name of Moses' older sister, Miriam. And here we see that she's kind of keeping watch. It's her job to kind of keep an eye on this uh, basket that's floating in, in the river there. It's placed among the reeds. And I'm sure there was probably this growing sense of panic as uh, she sees this small procession of women heading their way. And Pharaoh's daughter comes, and she comes down to bathe into the river, and to the Egyptians, the river was uh, something very sacred, and so this could have been an act of worship as she goes out into this, uh, to the river to bathe, paying homage here. And she sees the basket among the reeds, and she, she sends a servant woman over to take it. Now, I can't even imagine the panic if you were, like, a little kid. I mean, Miriam was probably, like, I think she was probably somewhere between five and seven. Like, and that was her job, to watch, uh, watch the baby. <laughs> Make sure his basket's okay. I don't know what they were planning on doing if, like, something happened. Like, I, I don't know what the plan was there. But imagine the panic. She was very young. She knew the danger, and she sees the her little brother being discovered. I mean, what terror, I'm sure, that she had in her mind. And when she opened it, verse 6, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, we would expect a Hebrew woman to take pity on a Hebrew baby, but he's found by an Egyptian woman who takes pity on him. But it's not just any Egyptian woman. It's Pharaoh's daughter. It's like worst case scenario. Pharaoh's daughter. If we would have been in the place of Miriam, we would have panicked. We're just losing it. To see the baby end up in the hands of an Egyptian. We've worked so hard to keep him away from. But in God's wonderful sovereignty, he injects this unexpected twist. In a bit of irony here, the plan to rescue Moses 
from Pharaoh's command to kill all the male children, the plan that was put in place to put him out of reach of Pharaoh's influence, it actually results in him being uh, adopted into Pharaoh's house. It's like this great, like, who saw that coming? What a crazy twist. But God has a history of demonstrating his wonderful irony by doing unexpected things. He shows his might and his wisdom and power. And there's, there's this trajectory that you can trace throughout Scripture where he gives these miracle babies to people who are childless. And this is another instance of that. Abraham was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 90. Both past childbearing age. And God tells them, I'm going to make a covenant with you and I'm going to give you, uh, just make you a great nation. It's like, we don't have kids that can make that happen. And God's saying, I'm going to give you a, a child, a, a, a son, who will be that link, who will create this great nation. And so they think it's really hilarious, and they laugh at God, and, uh, you know, Abraham's like just chuckling to himself on the floor, and Sarah's laughing. But later, God's like, you're going to name him Isaac because that means laughter, because you're laughing at me. So I'm going to remind you every time you call his name that you laughed at me. And God says this covenant will continue with Isaac. He becomes to Isaac physical evidence of God's faithfulness to Abraham. Later in the book of Judges, we see a woman who was barren and had no children. In Judges 13, verse 3, the angel of the Lord appears to her and says, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Verse 5, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So we have this child who's not an ordinary child, but will be a mighty deliverer for Israel, like Moses. This child is named Samson. And in his death, he destroys the Philistines and brings freedom to Israel. This woman, Ruth, is without child, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, is a widow. It looks like the line is going to run out, but Naomi has a relative in Bethlehem named Boaz, and Ruth, she goes to meet him and work in his fields, and uh, she ends up marrying Boaz, and they eventually have a son. When it didn't look like she could ever have uh, a family or a son, it looked like the line was going to end, they have a son named Obed, who becomes the grandfather of David, the king of Israel. Now, we could keep going with examples like this, because God historically works this way, where he gives this secret weapon of a miracle baby to people who don't have kids or can't have kids, and that baby is used mightily for his purposes as a deliverer to save uh, God's people 
to rescue. This happens, uh, you know, that we see here with Abraham. This happens in the birth of Moses. This happens in Samson. This happens in Ruth. We, we, we could keep going. But this comes to its ultimate climax and its fullest expression in the birth of Jesus. See, in all of these cases, it takes God's direct uh, intervention to give the child to the woman. It's totally contrary to how you would normally go about having a child. It's God's work, his accomplishment. No man can boast. This is God being faithful to his promises in his work. So Pharaoh's daughter, she doesn't even have a child. And now she gets this child adopted. And he's going to work to create a mighty deliverer through Moses. He is faithful to deliver Moses, his deliverer, even though it appears that things aren't going according to plan. Now, in Moses' most vulnerable moment, among the reeds here, as he's being discovered, God uses the opposition of man, this attack by Pharaoh for his work to continue. That's how he works in our life, using difficult situations, circumstances, trial, and tribulation for our ultimate good. Now, in Moses' case, he was cast onto the river, which ultimately led to the unlikely safety of, uh, of the place in the palace, and it leads to the salvation of God's people. God has done this similarly by putting people in difficult situations, in terrible situations, for his own good. How, how even the, the children of Israel got to Egypt was through uh, Joseph, who you read in the book of Genesis was the favorite son, and all the other sons were all jealous, and so they threw him in a pit, and then they tore his like sweet multicolored coat and told his dad that like he was killed, and then they sold him to slay, or, uh, into slavery. Then he goes, and he, he gets... Uh, to work for this guy named Potiphar, and then he gets accused of like wanting to rape this woman, then he gets thrown in jail. It's just like this terrible story, like none of this is looking good. And then he gets promoted from there to being second in command of all of Egypt. And then when the famine comes, he protects all of Egypt, and he makes a way for uh, his family, the children of Israel, those 70 people, to enter the land and not die off. And it's at the the receiving of his brothers there when he reveals his identity, when he says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. God had worked and planned to provide. You see, when God works this way in the life of an individual, when he brings these difficult circumstances, we tend to think this is all about what I'm going through and what I'm dealing with. But it's rarely that God works in the life of an individual in this way for an individual result. It's not for the salvation of that single person, but it's for the benefit of many. Moses is brought into these difficulties so that many might be saved. Joseph is brought into slavery and accused of these terrible things. He's in jail and then promoted to be the head of all of Egypt so that his family could be saved. Likewise, we see that Jesus 
brought into this world, living a perfect life on our behalf, but then faces death so that we might have life. His death results in the salvation of many. In his death, Satan appears to have won. He appears to have victory over the Son of God, but it's precisely through his death that Jesus conquers Satan's sin and death. So God works by pulling Moses into this difficult situation. Now, the exodus was not just for the Jews. We saw that the, the book is called the Exodus because it's talking about the Jews, uh, the Hebrews exiting the land of Egypt. But it's ultimately for the salvation of the whole world, including the Egyptians, those who would be bringing persecution and terror upon the Hebrews. It's for their salvation as well. When the Israelites finally leave Egypt, when they make their exodus, in chapter 12, verse 38, it says that a mixed multitude also went up with them. This means it wasn't just the Hebrew people leaving Egypt. God put on a display of his power and authority, of his care and faithfulness to his covenant people. And people responded. Some of these people were probably Egyptians who were like, we see what has been done here. The prophet Isaiah later, uh, he promised that the Lord uh, would create this relationship, that the Egyptians would respond to him. In Isaiah chapter 19, verse 21, the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. We see the fulfillment of this in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes and he fills the people of God. Peter gets up and he preaches Christ and that's the birth of the church. Thousands of people are saved on that day and then all of a sudden they're speaking in tongues and and in their own languages, one of those languages, for the first time, the Egyptians are hearing the gospel in their own language. They hear, they respond, they worship the Lord, they create vows and perform them. Now, this is God's wonderful sovereign plan. Pharaoh's daughter directly disobeys the command from her father. Thankfully, we can rely on that stereotype of like, daughters disobeying their fathers around that certain age where they think they're the princess. It's like, oh, perfect. This is great. God's like banking on that. That's definitely happening. Perfect. But he works in her disobedience. She disobeys the command from her father. She doesn't even obey. And she becomes a part of God's saving plan. And then later, if you follow the trajectory all the way from Egypt and uh, in, in this work here where she saves Moses, we, you follow this trajectory all throughout Scripture into Isaiah and into uh, Christ's work at the cross, and you find it in Acts 2, and then you keep going all the way into Revelation 7. We see the culmination of this in, in verse 9, where John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, 
This is the heavenly scene of everyone enjoying God from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now, palm branches are the symbol of freedom. So they go from being in, in Egypt, the land of bondage, into freedom, into rest, which God gives to his people. They cry out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, that Lamb won't be as resonating with us until we get a little bit further into Exodus, but there's a connection. There's a trajectory that's created here by Pharaoh's daughter being a part of God's saving plan. And in a sense, we can all be thankful for her because we're able to receive the benefits of her action We're able to know and enjoy Jesus and be a part of the family of God because she had pity upon Moses. We see in verse 7 of Exodus 2, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So Miriam's super smart. She sees this. She, like, pops out of the reeds, like, Oh, hey there. Like, you have a baby. Do you want me to see if someone can take care of him for you? And so uh, she gets in there, and God wanted to bless Moses' mother, Jochebed, for her obedience. And so uh, Pharaoh's daughter's like, Yeah, that's a great plan. Why don't you go and do that? Find someone who can take care of this kid, and then when he gets of age, I'll come and get him. And so Moses' uh, sister goes and she brings her mom, so smart, and she's like, Hey, I found this woman who wants to watch your kid. Like, will you watch him? And, she, and the Pharaoh's like, Yeah, I'll pay you even. Like, wouldn't that be nice? You get paid to watch your own kid? Make like enduring all the screaming and stuff worth it. I'm getting paid. Rolling in the dough there. That's totally awesome. Now the Lord's like wanting to bless. This woman. But more than that, something, something more impactful, something just incredible happens here in this opportunity. It's not just that she gets to spend time with her kid. It's not just that Moses do- doesn't die, but she's given, uh, she gets to get paid, but she has an opportunity to shape the identity of her son. Now, when your kids are young, that's when it's time to shape their identity. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord writes, or, uh, or he, he, de- he declares what should be said. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there's the statement that would be core to the household of uh, those who trust in, in God. And then he says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So the command here for uh, in Deuteronomy six is to communicate who God is, to know and grow with your children. Later in the New Testament, we see that this isn't a command that goes away, but we're told to uh, to continue. It says in verse uh, Ephesians six, verse four. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, 
but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there's a direct command both in the Old Testament and the New Testament of how we ought to learn, uh, teach our kids and how we ought to lead them into knowledge and understanding of who God is. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the smartest man in all of human history, the man with the most wisdom ever, writes, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Know Him. Enjoy Jesus when you're young. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. What he's saying there is don't waste your life. You have opportunity to know and enjoy Jesus and, and lead your children into that at a certain age, and you're giving them a leg up, giving them a filter by which they can view and see the world. Because he says the evil days are coming. Be prepared. Be prepared and be ready in your hearts for how you are going to shape your kids' identity. Now, Moses... He was hugely benefit, uh, benefiting from this because he was able to be raised in his earliest years with his own family and, in, and among God's people. He received uh, spiritual instruction. The community would shape him. It wasn't just uh, his parents, but the people that he was around. This is the same thing uh, for, for us. It's not just the parents' responsibility. The parents are the primary primary people who are responsible to uh, teach their children and lead them in spiritual instruction. But this is a community project, right? The, the kids who are downstairs, okay, get this. Everyone pay, this is really important. The kids who are downstairs, they're not the JV team. They're not the, this isn't the freshman team of our church. Like, they're varsity level with us. So the intention, the way that you communicate with them, the way that you talk to them and lead them and instruct them, they're on the same level. There's no hierarchy in the body of Christ. God cares and loves for them in the same way that he cares and loves for us. So the work that's going on below us is not less valuable than what we're doing up here. This isn't more important. It's the same level, same importance. They are peers. They're younger in age, but spiritually the way that God views us as, is that we're on the same level, and we want to love them and invest in them in that similar level. That's not the way that the, the world acts with kids. It's like, get out of here. You're young. You, you don't get to know it until you're at a certain age. But the gospel brings equality to, to all, all backgrounds, all people, because God sees them as made in his image, and if you're bought with the blood of Christ, you're bought with the blood of Christ. That's it. And so we want to love and shape our kids well. So if you have opportunities, if they're talking to you, there's not a distraction. Think of like this is an opportunity to sow a seed, to put Christ on display, to speak clearly, to instruct, because they're watching and they're the next generation of the church that's coming through. So we have a huge responsibility to love them and serve them well. So we want to be aware when we interact with them. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, God's plan is radical here. This is so good. Moses didn't grow up as a slave. 
but as a son. Safe. He had security in the house of the most powerful man in Egypt. Because he grew up as a son and not a slave, he was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. This is like the finest, uh, best quality education that you could get at this time. And uh, If you look at history, it, most likely Moses was trained in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, and diplomacy. So he got the best of the best, and it was in Pharaoh's own household that he was raising up someone who would deliver God's people from those people in that household. This is talking about working under someone's nose. Like, that's... <laughs> Pharaoh was training Moses to come and know that system better than anybody knows it. So when he comes and says, let my people go, he knows what he's speaking into. He's prepared. He's ready. But more than that, this gives us insight into what happens in the great exchange with Jesus. Moses was a slave, but became a son. And for us, Jesus, who is the son, Philippians 2 tells us that he became a man even in the form of a slave. He switched places who was a son, who had all the privileges, who had all the things that he would need, became a slave in our place so that we could be made as sons. We could be made as a part of his own family and brought into his household and receive all of the benefits that we do not deserve on our own. Like Moses, Jesus would face death at his birth. He faced the rule and the wrath of Herod. Moses foreshadows for us that same miraculous birth and deliverer that we see in Christ. In Matthew chapter 1, we're told that the Lord appeared to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. You see, under the oppression, under persecution, both of these guys, they get to hide in Egypt. Jesus gets, you're going into Egypt. You're going to hide there. Just like Moses is hiding in the palace. He's like right under Pharaoh's nose. He doesn't even know. And then down in verse uh, 16 of Matthew 1, Herod realizes he's been tricked by the wise men when they don't come and report. He becomes furious and carries out on that which the Lord said would happen. He kills all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. See, Pharaoh tried to do it secretly at first. He asked the wise men to tell him where Jesus was. 
And then when that failed, then he told the soldiers to go out openly and kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And in these things, God is working sovereignly to bring salvation. Those acts that were brought about through Herod and through Pharaoh are wicked acts. But God works with things that appear to be messed up. When there doesn't seem to be a way, when you're discouraged, when you are broken-hearted or, or full of anxiety, the Lord is there with you making a way. And he wants to lead you into resting in him. Because Jesus' work is good. He was born under those same circumstances, echoing back to that creation language. His work at the cross is finished. It's a work that is complete. And in his work, he rescues and saves. He delivers his people from bondage, and he brings them into rest. And so you don't have to work and strive. You don't have to fight for your own identity to justify your existence. I'll leave you with this one last scripture, and then we'll respond together. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, we read, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. God's rested from his works. If God's resting, if he's not trying to accomplish anything else, we don't need to be accomplishing anything else for our justification. Christ is risen. He's been raised from the dead for our justification. And in him we find our full, complete rest. Let's pray together and we'll respond. Lord, we're thankful for your wonderful grace. We're thankful for your wonderful plan. And how, Lord, when things seem difficult, when it seems like we're under a huge weight, Lord, you were there protecting and providing for us, accomplishing your work. We're thankful, Lord, that we could see in your word how you worked in Moses, how you were faithful. We can see how, Lord, you were faithful to deliver your people through the work of Samson and continue your lineage through Ruth and King David. And Lord, we're thankful that we can trust your work at the cross. It was, it's finished and complete. Nothing needs to be added. So Lord, we're thankful that we're secure in your hand and that nothing can separate us from you. You've purchased us with your own blood. And so Lord, we want to respond in thanksgiving and celebration of who you are.